Morning and welcome. Good to sing together and pray and, and look at God's Word, which is what we want to do right now. We're in a series of, uh, of surprising encounters with Jesus. At the end of John chapter 2, we read these words that Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. I think the basis of surprise when people meet Jesus is just that, that they find that they are known by him uh, right from the beginning. And the things that he knows and understands are often deeper than what they know about themselves. And so we find this regular occurrence in the Gospels that people uh, hear things, experiencing things from him that they don't anticipate. Last week, we uh, talked about an insider's surprise in John chapter 3. We looked at the story of Nicodemus who is the quintessential insider. Uh, He is a Pharisee. He has studied the law. He is, in fact, called the teacher of Israel, which probably indicates he had a special status as a teacher. He was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So, in a sense, everything was going his way, uh, but Jesus uh, had some surprising words for him. In spite of all that, he needed a supernatural work of the Spirit of God in his life. He needed new birth. Today, I want to talk about an outsider's surprise. And uh, I think it's striking that in John 3 and John 4, you have these uh, dialogues set uh, back to back, and it's quite a contrast. This may be my favorite gospel story, so uh, let's look at part of it today. We don't have time to look at the whole thing, but we'll We'll look at the the heart of it. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? All right, so if Nicodemus is the quintessential insider, this is the quintessential outsider. This woman knows what it is to be excluded. Probably an experience that you've had at one time or another. So let's think about what it means for her to be an outsider. Uh, First, there's the issue of race, religion, and politics, which are all intertwined here. And, uh, And John would hope although he gives some explanation, he would hope that we would understand that this being a Samaritan raises all those questions of religion, race, and politics. Uh, So let's let's do a little uh, recap here of what has happened to bring this about. The, uh, 
the United Kingdom of David and his son Solomon blew apart almost immediately when Solomon's son Rehoboam took the kingship. And uh, they had a civil war, and the kingdom was split with... uh, Boy, I can hardly see that. Okay. The kingdom is split between Israel in the north, ten of the tribes, who say, we have no part with the house of David, Uh, we're out of here. The tribe of Judah, which is the the largest of the tribes, and that's David's tribe, they stay faithful to the Davidic line of kingship, along with the small tribe of Benjamin. So two two tribes in the south, they take the name Judah, and the ten tribes in the north take the name of Israel. Uh, That's the beginning of... uh, the separation, there's warfare there, there's bad feelings and long memories as you would expect. <clears throat> uh, what happens is that under uh, Israel's third king, uh, King Omri decides that he's going to build a new capital city, one that's better fortified, so he builds the city of Samaria. That then later becomes not only the name of that town, but the name of that entire area. So people who live in that northern area are Samaritans. Uh, 722, the Assyrian Empire is expanding from the north, and they overrun Israel. In doing so, they take... Uh, many of the brightest and the best and the wealthiest of the Jews who, Israelites who lived in the north, and uh, distribute them to other places. And then in the, uh, in the face of the declining population, it's only the poorest people that are left, they import a number of outsiders from all different parts of the empire. Part of the theory about that is that a good way to suppress nationalistic rebelliousness is to diffuse the population. And and so they bring in all these other people and they intermarry with the Israelites who are there. And uh, the result is, especially if you live in Judah in the south, the result is you come to view your northern cousins as half-breeds. And that's how the Jews came to see the Samaritans. Along with that interbreeding, the Samaritans also developed certain distinctives in their worship of Yahweh. Uh, So, for example, they did not accept the prophetic writings. For them, the Bible was the five books of Moses. And they ignored the prophets. Now, one thing that helped them to do was to make the claim that Jerusalem, where Solomon built the temple, Jerusalem was not the center of worship in the Samaritan mind because they had only the books of Moses and Moses didn't say anything about the specific place. The argument they made was that rather than Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where the temple was, 
that the true place of worship was Mount Gerizim. You remember some time ago we talked about Moses' farewell words in Deuteronomy and how he told Joshua to take the tribes to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They're across the valley from each other, and they would, they would reaffirm the law there. They would read it with its blessings and its cursings, and uh, the six tribes on Ebal, every time the curses were read, they would say, Amen, you know, and shout across the valley. And then on the other side, the other six tribes were on Mount Gerizim for the blessing. And when the blessings were read, you know, if you live this way, if you keep God's word and so forth, you'll be blessed in the field and so forth. And those tribes would say, Amen. <clears throat> well, that, that was enough to establish for the Samaritans, that Mount Gerizim was the place where they should worship. So they did. They eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then just to make everything friendlier, in about 167, John Hyrcanus, who was the, the leader of the, uh, the forces in Judah, led an army up there, and they destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So that made everybody feel good. And, uh, and in Jesus' day, that temple had not been rebuilt. But the people still worshiped there. So the question that comes up in this whole discussion here is, you know, what, what's the true place to worship? And that's the history uh, behind that. So, in terms of race, the Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds, their religion was seen as corrupt, and their politics was very different from uh, the politics of Judah, and they'd been fighting for centuries. So, this woman comes to Jesus, or meets him, and from the standpoint of Judaism, she is an outsider in all those ways. So much so that uh, John tells us that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They would go through the territory, and sometimes they would buy food from the Samaritans. Not always. It looks like the disciples had the freedom to go into the town and buy food. But they wouldn't eat with a Samaritan. That's how sharp the, the conflict was. So this woman is an outsider in those respects. She's also an outsider for another reason, that is, she's a woman. Uh, <clears throat> Gender is a huge issue through all of world history, right? I mean, we're still working on this. And, and women have been, by and large, discriminated against and excluded from all kinds of situations, uh, excluded economically, uh, politically, uh, in Jesus' time, a woman would not be an acceptable witness in a court of law. So exclusion was characteristic of the situation. Uh, <clears throat> rabbis were advised not to speak with women. So this is not just that she's a Samaritan, but she is a woman. And when the disciples come back from town, what does it say? They were surprised. And she is as well. 
how is it, she says to Jesus, that you ask me for water? She says, you're a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman. How can you do that? And then there's the third element. There is, a, she's a moral outsider. That's the discussion, uh, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Uh, right, you don't have a husband, but you've had five already, and now you're cohabiting with the guy who's not even your husband. <clears throat> uh, this is a woman who has experienced sexual brokenness. Now, it's possible a couple of her husbands died, uh, but almost certainly there's been some divorces in there, and currently she's uh, apparently given up on the, the marriage deal sixth time around. Uh, this woman is an outsider, not just to Jews, but to her own people, apparently. The, the question comes up, why does she come to draw water at noontime? See, the normal pattern would be that women would come to draw water either in the morning or in the evening when the sun's rays were less intense. And they would usually come as a group for safety's sake. So here's a woman who comes alone, apparently, and she comes at midday. Why is that? Well, it's pretty likely that she does that because she is avoiding her own people. She's an outsider even to other Samaritans. So this outsider, in every respect, encounters this Jew. We're not told how she knows that he's a Jew, but it may be, it may be dialect that they can pick that up, or it's not explained. But she understands that he's a Jew, and she is surprised that he would ask her for water, that he would speak to her. So let's think about this surprising prophet, because there's many attractive things about Jesus in this passage. Let's, uh, let's pick out a few of them. He's surprising because... Uh, the conversation that he has with her is surprising. Uh, what he does, and she's very conscious of it, is that he's crossing boundaries. The boundary of gender, the boundary of race and religion, uh, the boundary of her own immorality, he's, he's going into all those areas. And she is surprised. She's captured by this. How is it that you, a Jew, can speak to me in this way? It is one of the most challenging, I think, and attractive things about Jesus that he is comfortable crossing boundaries that few other people cross. 
It is one of the great attractions, I think, of authentic Christianity that it is able to cross boundaries. Uh, it's also one of the ways that we most easily deny that we are followers of Jesus when we refuse to cross boundaries. Right? <clears throat> and there's plenty of boundaries around. Jesus crosses the political boundary, doesn't seem to be very concerned about it. So think about the last couple years, friends. Think about the way that Christians have stumbled over political boundaries and brought it into the church. Christians not being able to speak with other brothers and sisters who have ended up on the other side of a political boundary. I wonder what Jesus would say about that. Just a thought. You can... You can think about that yourselves. So there's a surprising conversation here. There's also surprising perception on the part of Jesus. Uh, they've had this conversation about water. You know, how, do you, how can you ask me for water? You're a Jew. Well, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would have asked him and he'd given you living water. Wow, living water. What's that about? You don't have anything to draw from the well. How are you going to do that? Uh, well, the water I'm talking about is a different kind of water. She's intrigued. I don't know if she comprehends what he's talking about. I'm inclined to think she isn't. I think she's just enjoying the conversation. Maybe being a little flirtatious. Oh, well. I'd like that water. Give me some of that water. This, this is a, a woman who apparently enjoyed flirting with men. That's my read of her. And, and I read her as kind of playful here. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like some of that water. <clears throat> but then suddenly she encounters the surprising perception of Jesus, who, almost out of the blue, she says, I'd like some of that water. He says, go call your husband and come back. And suddenly her radar is up. Her radar is up, and to deflect that question, she says, well, I, I have no husband. And Jesus then goes even deeper. That's right. In a technical way, you've spoken the truth. You don't have a husband, but you're living with somebody, and you've had five husbands already. Jesus knows her, and she's not sure she wants to be known. You ever have that experience with, with the Lord? 
He knows you. He knows me. I find sometimes I don't want to be known. I don't want to think about the fact that he really does understand me. He knows where my heart is. I think that's what this woman has encountered, this encountered, this surprising perception. So what does she do? She said, "Ah, I perceive you are a prophet." And then she says, uh, Can we talk theology for a little bit? Our fathers, our Samaritan fathers, worshipped in this mountain. Uh, Syker's well, where they are, is right near Mount Gerizim. So she says, well, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, where the the Samaritan temple used to be and where they still worship. That's the place. But you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. So you're a prophet. What do you say about this? Now, once again, we don't know entirely what's going on. We have to surmise. And my surmise is that this question is in part a dodge because it shifts the issue away from her personal situation that Jesus knows. She doesn't want to be known. And she wants to talk about something a little further remove this historical issue, and maybe also, because, because I do this sometimes, right? Uh, maybe also there's this sense of, I think that we're right on this, you know, this historical argument. I think it really is Jerusalem, and, uh, and I'd kind of like to have a debate with this guy. And if I can show him that I'm in the know and I'm right, what will that do? Well, isn't it true for a lot of us that that our biggest concern is about being correct, (laughs) being right? How many times have I excused sin in my life because I say to myself, yeah, but I, you know, I understand the Bible. I I know some theology. I mean, I know there's these little problems, but but I, I really get it. And we can't be sure, but but that's my suspicion with what she's doing. It is another attempt to deflect from who she is. Uh, the, the, first wa- the first deflection was, I don't have a husband. The second deflection is, can we talk theology here? And in his graciousness, Jesus uh, agrees to do that. On this question of Jerusalem or Samaria, uh, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, he says, uh, here's the problem. The Samaritans don't know what they're doing here. They don't have the full teaching of 
the prophets. Salvation is a line that has come through Judah and through King David. Of course, if you don't have the prophets, you, you don't have any witness to that, right? But salvation comes through the Jewish line, says the Lord Jesus. But then he makes an addition which turns the discussion again. He says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And he says, you know, the day is coming, and in fact, it's already here when those who worship God will worship in spirit and truth. God seeks people like that. And it's not going to be either here on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem because God is spirit. And God is seeking spiritual worshipers. And in saying that, he turns the question back to her heart, what's inside of her. So he doesn't lose sight of what he's doing through this whole discussion. She says, one more attempt, I think, at deflection. She says, well, uh, we know that Messiah is coming. The Samaritans believed that in Messiah as well as the Jews. We know that Messiah is coming. When he gets here, he's going to solve these problems, even if I don't have answers for him. Then he makes this surprising claim. I, the one who speak to you, I am he. So there's a couple of things going on here, huh? One is this relentless pursuit of the heart. This unwillingness to be distracted by any kind of uh, deflection. Gently but powerfully coming back to say, where is your heart? And then raising the issue of who he is. Uh, because if we're concerned about our heart, we also have to be concerned about who Jesus is. Because he's the one who can deal with the problems of the heart. So there's a double call here. One is, look inside, give an honest look. Secondly, uh, answer the question. Who is it that you're talking to? A prophet? Yes, but more than a prophet. The Messiah has come, and, uh, and what does she do? She leaves her water jug, and off she goes to the town, and she says to the townspeople, come see the man who told me everything that I ever did, <clears throat> which is a bit of an overstatement, but it points to the impact of his focusing on her inner moral life. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? <clears throat> is she convinced? Uh, I think at this point she's not quite convinced yet. I think she's going to get there. And what we're told is that because of her witness and testimony, the people do come out, and many of them believed on Jesus over the next few days. A surprising encounter for an outside person. 
Just as important as what takes place for the insider Nicodemus, two surprising encounters. Have you been surprised by Jesus lately? Have you ever been surprised by him? He will surprise you, and he will call you to open up your life to be known by him and to put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the extraordinary love that you have for outsiders. In some sense, uh, Lord, we're all outsiders. We're outside of grace. Uh, we, we need to be brought in by you. Thank you for that love that we see in this account. Thank you for your love for each one of us. Uh, may May faith and trust and openness to the Spirit of God be the reality that we increasingly learn to live with as we follow Him. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.